going to begin with a brief reading from an author named Philip Brooks and encourage you to listen closely to these words. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never owned a house. He never went to college. He never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was nailed to a cross. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone. And today he is the central figure of the human race. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on earth as has that one solitary figure, Jesus Christ, the central figure of the human race. With that reality resonating in our heads and in our hearts, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 15. Presently, we are looking at the trial of Jesus Christ. His trial consists of two parts. Part number one over here is religious in nature. It takes place before the Jews. It actually consists of three stages. Firstly, Jesus stands before Annas, the the high priest. He was deposed. He stands, secondly, before Caiaphas, the real high priest in that day, and the council. And then thirdly, he stands again before Caius and the high priest at daybreak. The first time during the night, the second time during the daybreak, And those three stages constitute the first part of the trial of the Lord Jesus, religious in nature, before the Jews, focusing, centering on this question, are you the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Over here, the second part of the trial is before the Romans. It takes place uh, in three stages. First, before Pilate. Second, before Herod. And then third, back to Pilate. And the central question, the central issue throughout the second part of the trial is simply this. Are you the king of the Jews? And so two parts. Jewish in nature. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? It's religious. The second, Roman, political in nature. Are you the king of the Jews? Last Sunday, we looked at the first. Today we're going to look at the second. And so follow along as I begin reading in chapter 15, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? 
And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. They clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. There is a phrase used four times in these verses, and it constitutes the focal point of the scene. It is the phrase, the king of the Jews. Verse 2, Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Verse 9. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Verse 12. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Verse 18. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. It actually doesn't stop there. Because as we move on in the narrative and as Jesus is suspended on the cross between heaven and earth, verse 26, there is an inscription of the charge against him which read, the king of the Jews. We're going to leave that fifth reference for next Sunday, focusing on the four references in the first 20 verses. Because these four references unpack the scene for us. And we learn three things concerning, four things concerning the king of the Jews. The first is this. The king is interrogated. We read of that beginning in verse 1 through to verse 5. The king is interrogated. Now during the night, the soldiers have returned from the garden, having arrested Jesus. They've returned to the council. They've presented Jesus before the council before the high priest, Caiaphas, and they have passed sentence. They have condemned him to death. This is startling when we pause and consider for a moment who this council is. And this council consists of the religious elite. Uh, This council is made up of, of the Jewish authorities, the principal men within the nation of Israel. This is the aristocracy. 
These are the privileged men. These are the educated men. These are men who are immersed in the Old Testament scriptures. These are the men who lead the nation in their religion, religious rituals, ceremonies, observance. And at their head stands the high priest. Think of it for a moment. The high priest. The man who actually sits in Aaron's chair. This man has 1,500 years of the history of the priesthood behind him. At this point, if memory serves me correctly, this man, Caiaphas, has been high priest, I think, for about 15 years. That means he has celebrated the Day of Atonement 15 times. That means he has made that journey on 15, at least 15 separate occasions through the most holy place, through the veil, into the holy place, sprinkling the blood of the Lamb on the Day of Atonement. Now this man, the high priest, stands directly across from the one to whom he actually points. The true high priest is face to face with Caiaphas. And it's not only that Caiaphas can't see him. It's not only that Caiaphas doesn't recognize him. Caiaphas actually charges him with blasphemy. But the council has a problem. They want him dead, but they can't carry out the execution. They can't carry out the sentence. They need the Romans for that. And so they bind the Lord Jesus. We read that in verse 1 of chapter 15. Pause, consider that, spend some time meditating upon that this afternoon. The boundless one is bound. And off they take him to Pilate because they need the Romans to carry out this sentence of execution. And so they bind him, they deliver him over, right at the end of verse 1, to Pilate. Verse 2, Pilate asks a very straightforward question. Are you the king of the Jews? Why is he asking this question? It's derived from the charge which the council is bringing to him. You see, the council knows that Pilate is going to want a political reason for executing Jesus. And so this claim to be the king of the Jews, it it, it masks what? It, It clouds what? A charge of insurrection, a charge of rebellion. And so Pilate wants to hear from the accused himself. He wants to hear from Jesus himself. What does he say? Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answers, you have said so. Now, why does Jesus say that? Friend, you need to understand something. The Lord Jesus is not interested in escaping from Pilate's hands. The Lord Jesus is not the least bit interested in avoiding what is coming. He embraces the charge, and he embraces whatever that means to Pilate, because he has his face fixed upon the cross. Pilate isn't finished. He presses him further. Verse 3, the priests are accusing Jesus of many things. And so Pilate asks him again, have you no answer to make? Jesus answers that first question. He won't avoid that charge. He is embracing the cross. He is embracing the sentence. And yet he remains silent in the face of all these false accusations. Verse 5, Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. This reveals an invaluable truth concerning Jesus Christ. I mentioned it last week. I'm going to mention it again now because it is a precious, a precious truth. It is summarized, summed up in the words of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not 
open his mouth. Think of it for a moment, friend. His silence in the face of betrayal. Go back to verse 45 of chapter 14. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane with the eleven. Judas arrives on the scene. He approaches the Lord Jesus, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus has known this man for three years. They're intimates, close. They've traveled together. Judas has heard his teaching. Judas has witnessed his signs and his miracles. Just a few hours earlier, Jesus stooped at the feet of Judas and washed his filthy feet. And now Judas, this this moment of heinous betrayal. Friend, do not let it escape your notice. This is amazing silence. Not one word of condemnation. Not one threat. Consider his silence in the face of the injustice. Also back in chapter 14, verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? What men and what are they testifying? They're false witnesses. The council has brought them in for the purpose of giving false witness because they only have one objective in view. It is to condemn. It is to sentence the Lord Jesus to death. And in the face of that injustice, he does not go on the offensive. He does not lash out. He does not strike out. Friend, this is amazing silence. Yet notice his silence in the face of the abuse. Verse 65 of chapter 14. Some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. Friend, this is the one by whom, for whom, and to whom all things are created. This is the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. This is the one who rebuked the storm. This is the one who silenced the demon. This is the one who raised the dead with a mere word. At this moment, he could have called legions of angels. But what do we witness? Amazing silence. And notice his silence in the face of abandonment. Still back in chapter 14, verse 71. Peter, when he is asked, are you with him? You're a Galilean, are you with him? He began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And the rooster crows. Luke tells us at that very moment Jesus turns and he catches Peter's eye. What does he say? Nothing. I told you so, Peter. No, not a word. Not a word of condemnation. Not a word of rebuke. Amazing silence. This is what I want you to notice, friend. Three wonderful truths. His amazing silence displays his devotion. The depth of his devotion. Hebrews 12, verse 2. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. What joy. The glory of his Father and the salvation of his people. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Amazing silence, revealing the depth of his devotion. Secondly, amazing silence, revealing the depth of his conviction. 1 Peter 2.23 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And thirdly, amazing silence, revealing the depth of his affection. John 13, 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That little expression, his own, is key in the book of John. We first encounter it in the first chapter where we read that he came to his own and his own received him not. There the expression is used in a general sense. In John 13 verse 1, it is used in a particular sense, having loved his own. Those whom the Father gave him before the foundation of the world, he loved them to the end. Amazing silence. The depth of his devotion, the depth of his conviction, the depth of his affection. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Second thing we learn concerning this king is that he is rejected. Not only is he interrogated, that's the first five verses, he is rejected. That brings us to the content of verse 6 and carries us all the way through to the end of verse 11. Mark makes it clear at the outset in verse 6 that at the time of the feast, that is the Passover, Pilate and the Jews, they have an agreement. They have a little custom. The custom is this. He states it clearly. Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. Where did this come from? It's the Passover. In all likelihood, this custom of releasing a prisoner symbolized the nation's own history. What they are celebrating at at that time of the year, Passover, they are celebrating the Exodus. They are remembering their bondage in Egypt and how they were captives, how they were prisoners, and how God brought them out of bondage. And so this seems to have been a custom that had arisen between between the Roman governor and the Jews, whereby he would humor them, their history, and release for them one prisoner to commemorate that great bondage from which God had saved them. They know there are rebels in Pilate's prison. Uh, They know there are insurrectionists. Uh, They know there are men who have have committed murder in the insurrection. Uh, These men are terrorists. These men are precisely what comes to mind when we hear that word today. Pilate has these terrorists in his prison cell. But for the Jews, these men are national heroes. And so as is their custom on this particular day, a crowd begins to gather And this crowd knows what the custom is. They can come, they can choose one prisoner, one murderer, one insurrectionist, one terrorist, a national hero who they know is in Pilate's prison cell and ask for his release. And so they come. Pilate sees the crowd. And seeing the crowd and hearing the crowd, he also sees an opportunity. Why? Pilate doesn't want to execute Jesus. Pilate knows. Jesus is popular with the crowd. He knows, Mark states it clearly, that the reason the council, the Jewish religious authorities, have delivered Jesus over to him is because they are envious of his popularity. Now this crowd comes, as is the custom, requesting that he fulfill that tradition and release a prisoner for them. He sees an opportunity. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to offer to release Jesus. 
And apparently he's popular with this crowd. And when they cry for his release, I'll be able to turn to the council and say, well, boys, I did the best I could. I would have executed him, but your own people want me to release him. If you've got a problem, take it up with him. Them, I'm, I'm done with it. But the council beats him to the crowd. And as he makes that request, as he, as he offers to fulfill that request, who would you have me release for you? Rather than cry out Jesus, the chief priests, the council, the Jewish religious authorities, they have already whispered in the crowd's ears, and they cry out for Barabbas. Barabbas is an interesting word. I don't have time to get into this. Bar, son, son of. Abba, the father. That's intentional. You think about that later this afternoon. Barabbas, son of the father. They cry for this terrorist. And Pilate grants their request. In this, we see a wonderful, a a precious, special truth displayed for us. It is simply this. A terrorist, a prisoner, deserving of death, is released. The guilty is released. Whereas the innocent is condemned. What's happening here? The innocent is dying for the guilty. It reminds us of what we read in Isaiah 53, verse 8. He was cut off out of the land of the living. He was killed, cut off out of the land of the living. Why? It's God speaking. For the transgression of my people. For the transgression of my people. We see the innocent taking the place of the guilty. It leads us, that truth, that concept leads us to the bedrock of the gospel, which is summed up in this word, substitution. We all have a pretty good idea what that word means, to substitute. We watch sports, baseball, and a, a pinch runner or pinch hitter. He is acting as what? A substitute. The player is taking the place, the position of someone else on the field. You get that idea? But substitution in a biblical, biblical sense, it, it conveys much more than that. It's the idea of, of someone innocent assuming the place of someone else. This was powerfully illustrated for me years ago, that book. It was made into a film, The Bridge Over the River Kwai. I'm sure many of us are familiar with that. Its setting is the Second World War. And the Japanese have invaded Burma, and they have taken a number of the allies, allied soldiers, troops, captive, prisoner. They're in a camp, and they are marched daily to this river, Kwai, where they are constructing, involved in constructing a bridge. March there at the beginning of the day, march back to the camp to spend the night. And after each day's work, as they, as they prepare to return to the camp, roll call, they number all of the prisoners, and they also begin to count all of the tools. And on this one particular day, uh, the guard notices a shovel is missing. And he demands that the thief, the culprit, identifies himself. If not, all of the soldiers would be put on half rations, which was in and of itself a death sentence, because they were already living on top of this. One soldier, innocent, stepped forward, and immediately he was shot. They return to the camp and return all of the equipment. Another guard counts the shovels. They were all there. They had miscounted. This man, who was innocent, assumed 
the other's place and bore the penalty. Are you getting the idea? And yet even that comparison, that analogy, that illustration, it falls apart at an extremely important place. Do you know what it is? In that illustration, you have the innocent dying in place of the innocent. That is not substitution in the biblical sense. Substitution in Scripture is when the innocent takes the place of the guilty. Understand, as Jesus is on Calvary's cross, and and, and as Scripture teaches us two thieves, one on his right, one on his left, that, 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 that word thief, it, it, it doesn't carry much weight with us. In its original usage, it actually conveys an insurrectionist. Those two men crucified with Jesus are terrorists. They are despised by the Romans. They, 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 you, you are, you are, you are at, the, at the dregs of society as far as the Romans are concerned. And Jesus takes the place of Barabbas. Jesus is identified as an insurrectionist. Jesus is identified as a terrorist. And there he is crucified with those other terrorists. He is numbered among the transgressors. And he dies not for his own sin. But again, in the words of Isaiah 53, 8, he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people. It is the innocent dying for the guilty. It is my guilt and my sin imputed to Jesus Christ at Calvary's cross and Jesus Christ bearing the full weight of God's wrath in my that truth, substitution, it, it's fallen on hard times in our day. A lot, a lot of people recoil at that. Um, they find it quite uh, repugnant. They find the whole thing kind of obscene. Friend, it is obscene. It is. You have the very Son of God, the spotless Lamb of God, one who is perfect, one who is innocent, and you have the sin of all his people imputed to him, and you have him bearing the full weight, not one ounce spared, the full weight of the wrath of God. To understand substitution and what is happening at Calvary's cross, we need to come to grips with the sinfulness of our sin. One old author wrote the following, Sin is incomparably malignant. Because the God principally injured by it is incomparably excellent. Sin is a breach of God's law. It is a violation of God's command. It is a contradiction of God's will. Sin is contempt for the incomparable God's authority. Sin is to slight his dominion and deny his sovereignty. Hear this. Sin is such a monster that if its power were equal to its spite... And if its strength were equal to its malice, it would kill God. Thus, Calvary's cross. Thus, Calvary's cross. See, at Calvary's cross, we we see two things transpiring. We have from God's perspective the sin of his people imputed to his beloved son and the father forsaking the son, the son bearing hell in our place, condemnation, substituting, giving himself for us. 
From the other end, from the other angle, do you know what we see? We see the depth of our own depravity. We see just how sick our hearts are. We hear our voice echoing in the cry of the council, condemned. We hear our voice, we see ourselves in Pilate himself, mere contempt toward the Lord Jesus. We see ourselves in the brutality of these Roman soldiers and their attitude toward the Lord Jesus. Friend, you need to understand the depth of your sin. And we need to understand in the first place that sin is utter rebellion against a holy God. And understand that what makes sin so terrible in the sight of God is simply this. Every act of sin is the expression of the heart, my desire, that in actual fact God would cease to exist. That is sin. And at Calvary's cross, we see the Lord Jesus numbered among the transgressors. We see the Lord Jesus being cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of his people. R.C. Sproul summed it up beautifully in this one sentence. In the substitution that took place at the cross, we see the glorious grace of God, the very heartbeat of the Christian faith. I'll repeat that. It's wonderful. In the substitution that took place at the cross, we see the glorious grace of God, the very heartbeat of the Christian faith. Now, quite possible you're not a Christian. Entirely possible there are people here who aren't believers, who aren't Christians. Friend, I, I beseech you with, with all love and with all truthfulness to come face to face with your sin. I'm not, I'm not talking about, in the first instance, murder and adultery, these things which we often label gross, heinous sins. I'm not even speaking in the second instance of envy and, and anger and bitterness. I'm speaking primarily of this, friend. Each and every day you determine to live your life however you please. It is a cry of utter rebellion against Almighty God. And it bears the sentence of condemnation. Understanding that, the next glorious truth that we must take to heart is this word, substitution. That the one who is perfectly innocent, the one who is spotless and blameless, the one whom we behold a few Sundays ago in the garden, it, with, that, with that sense of his father's displeasure with the sin that will be imputed to him as he pours out his soul, his heart, in agony to his father. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. We now behold him on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And to understand that it is our sin that nails him there. And to understand, again in the words of Sproul, in the substitution that took place at the cross, we see the glorious grace of God, the very heartbeat of the Christian faith. Thirdly, we learn something else concerning the king in this stage of the trial. It is this. He is actually condemned. Verse 12 through to verse 15. Pilate again said to them. He thought he had a way out. When the crowd showed up, he had an aha moment. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to honor this custom. I'm going to offer to release Jesus. I know he's popular. I know why they've brought him and delivered him over to me. It's out of envy. It's because they dislike him and they actually hate him. But if I can appeal to the crowd, get the crowd on my side, I can resolve this thing and clear it up, no problem. To his horror, the crowd actually cries out for him to release 
Barabbas. And so Pilate is left with his initial problem. And so in verse 12, he again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And look at the cry. And it's the crowd, folks. They cried out again, Crucify him. We move into verse 14. Pilate's next question is crucial. He said to them, Why? What evil has he done? It's irrelevant. This is an innocent man. Pilate knows it. The council knows it. The crowd knows it. His innocence is irrelevant. They shout it out. All is irrelevant. It's shouted out all the more. Crucify him. The scene is quickly degenerating. The council was agitated. Now the crowd is agitated. Pilate, he wasn't banking on this. He wasn't expecting this. Pilate spends as little time as possible in Jerusalem. Pilate actually stays, his principal residence is in Caesarea on the coast, the Mediterranean coast. That's where he likes to stay. He really wants nothing to do with the Jews, wants to avoid them at all if he, if he possibly can. But he knows it's Passover. He knows this is a big deal for the Jews over whom he rules. He's the governor. And so he travels with his entourage all the way from Caesarea down to Jerusalem. And yes, okay, there he is participating in this feast. And he, and he, and he will grant this, this annual custom of releasing a prisoner. He wasn't banking on this. To be awakened in the dead of night by the council, presented with this man Jesus, no credible charge, obviously innocent, obviously a case of enmity. He tries to wiggle his way out of it. He tries to engage the crowd. And when he sees that the doors are closing all around him, he thinks, he perceives he is left with no other alternative. So Pilate sees fear of man far exceeds his fear of God. And he is politically expedient. So Pilate. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Did you catch that last phrase? He delivered him to be crucified. Now again, appealing to Isaiah 53, what do we learn of the Lord Jesus here? It's found in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Now this is subtle. And yet it is there and it is glaring once we unpack it, once we remove all that clouds our view. It is subtle, but it is there. It is important and it is beautiful. Go back all the way to verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away, notice the words, and delivered him over to Pilate. Now look at verse 10. Same thing is confirmed. For he, that is Pilate, perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. And now verse 15, the very last statement, having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. You go back even further in Mark's gospel, and first of all, we read that Judas delivered him over to the council. Then we learn that the council delivered him over to Pilate. And now we read that Pilate delivers him over, delivers him up to be crucified. Now, I said this was subtle, but it is important and it is beautiful. When we turn over to Romans chapter 8, no need to do so. I'm just going to read it for you. Verse 32, Paul employs precisely the same phrase in the Greek 
and he declares the following. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Judas delivers him over to the council. The council delivers him over to Pilate. Pilate delivers him over to be crucified. But behind the scenes, sovereignly orchestrating the entire ordeal, we see the father not sparing his own son, but delivering him up for us all. That phrase, he who did not spare his own son, we find it in Scripture. It's very interesting fascinating. find it way back in Genesis 22, to be precise. God commands Abraham to do what? To take his son Isaac, his only son, his beloved son, to go and to offer him on a mountain. Abraham, he's ready to obey. He's ready to plunge the knife into his son. And then again, he hears the voice of God. And he hears God say, now I know that you would not spare your own son. And now here we see the father not sparing his own son, his only son, his only begotten son, his beloved son, not sparing him, not withholding one ounce of his wrath, but delivering him up for us all. That's what's meant in Isaiah 53 verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord. I think in some of our translations it actually says it was God's pleasure. It pleased God to crush him, to bruise him. He has put him to grief at his death. The father has put the son to death. The father has handed over, delivered the son. Why does it please? I mean, friends, this is staggering. If if we really spend time thinking on this and pondering it and, and trying to, by God's spirit, absorb it with our hearts, this is a Staggering truth, awe-inspiring truth, that the father was pleased to bruise, to crush his son. Why? Let me give you two essential truths, two essential reasons. The first is this. The death of Jesus is central to God's eternal purpose to restore us as his children. The death of Jesus is central to God's eternal purpose to restore us as his children. And in restoring us as his children, what is his goal? It is to take us as his inheritance, as an eternal display of the glory of his grace. It's a wonderful truth, and we'll never lose sight of it, that we, you and I, Christians, we are not the end of the gospel. Do you understand that? Our salvation, you being saved, me being saved, that is not the end of the gospel. It is merely the means. The end of the gospel, the purpose of the gospel, is the glory of God. And God was pleased, the Father was pleased to crush the Son. Why? Because by his death, he would accomplish that plan central to his eternal purpose our restoration as his children, thereby inheriting us as an eternal testimony to the depth of his grace. Secondly, the extent of Jesus' suffering reveals the extent of his love for his Father's glory. 
That's precious. The extent of Jesus' suffering, the Father bruising the Son at Calvary's cross, the extent of His suffering reveals the extent of His love for His Father's glory. That's what's meant when I read earlier from the book of Hebrews, that He despised the shame. He embraced the cross, despising the shame. Why? Because of the joy that was set before Him. What was the joy that was set before him? Principally and primarily, my friend, understand this. The joy that was set before the Son was the glory of the Father. And the Son was prepared to suffer. The Son was prepared to have our sin imputed, reckoned to him, and bear the wrath of his Father, be forsaken by his Father, because he understood it to be the means by which we would be restored as God's children, and in our restoration the Father would be glorified. And so the Father was pleased to bruise him, because he was pleased with his eternal purpose. The Father was pleased to bruise him. Why? because he was, dis- he was pleased with this display of the extent of his son's love for his glory. Fourth truth concerning the king is this. He's mocked. Verses 16 through 20, a rather sick scene. And yet we see our depravity in it if we care to take a close look. Legally, these soldiers have no reason for abusing him. They vent their spleen, I suppose, because they don't know who he is. They really don't care. The story's irrelevant. As far as they're concerned, he's like a Barabbas. He's a radical. He's an insurrectionist. He's a seditionist. Maybe he's even murdered innocents. He's a terrorist. That's all they know. And so they do what is within their power to do to abuse him and humiliate him. So in verse 17, a king, eh? Hail, king of the Jews. They put a purple cloak on him. Notice what they do also there in the middle of verse 17. This is key. This is pivotal. They twist together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him. How would they come up with that idea? One of the soldiers sitting there, I saw some thorns outside. Let me go get them. We'll make a crown and put it on his head. Who who, who came up with that sadistic idea? Somewhat irrelevant. God is orchestrating something far greater here. In the mention of that thorn and in the making of that crown, And in the setting of that crown of thorns upon the head of the Lord Jesus, God is driving us back in time. Where? To the garden. He's driving us all the way back to the garden. And he is reminding us of our forefather, our first father, Adam's sin and rebellion. And he is reminding us that as a consequence, a result of Adam's sin and rebellion against God, death entered into the world. Not only that, All creation was cursed. We hear that word curse, we kind of think of voodoo or something, don't we? Hocus pocus, some kind of spell, superstition. That's not the biblical sense. When we read in Scripture that God cursed creation, what we mean is simply this, and Scripture affirms that Paul takes us down this road in Romans 8, that God subjected all creation to futility. That before Adam's sin, God saw all that he created and he declared that it was good, it was very good. Symmetry, harmony, beauty. And because of Adam's sin and rebellion, ugliness entered in. And a curse entered in, subjecting all creation to futility. And we see it 
in the break in the relationship between man and God, between man and man, between husband and wife. We see it in the pain of childbirth. We see it in the pain and toil of work. In Genesis 3.18, we're given to us symbolically in this truth that from that moment, thorns infested the ground. Thorns are an intrusion into creation. And a reminder of the curse. You kids, you understand that every time you step on a sticker? Done that a few times. You're there everywhere. Every time we, stick, we step on one of those stickers, we are being reminded of what? This world is cursed. Harmony is gone. The symmetry is gone. Sin has entered in and thorns have infested the ground. Now we fast forward to this scene. And what do we see? We see Jesus crowned with the very thing we deserve. That's what's going on here. We see Jesus bearing the curse. It's summed up again beautifully in Isaiah 53, verse 5. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. He became a curse for us. He bore God's curse upon Calvary's cross. One author has penned the following. It's a little wordy. I pray the Spirit of God gives us understanding. Focus, focus on these words. He writes, Adam comes naked. Adam comes naked to a living tree and spiritually murders the entire human race by a single act of disobedience. Jesus comes to a dead tree and is stripped naked then in the ultimate act of obedience, he makes alive all those who repent of their sin and believe in him. Do you get it, friend? Do you understand it? That by virtue of Adam's fall, Adam as our head, our representative, all of creation, us included, we are under a curse. And yet Jesus has become a curse for us at Calvary's cross. We enjoy that now as Christians. We enjoy the position of of the penalty of that curse being removed. We enjoy what it means to be in Christ and what it means to be justified and adopted and set apart to God. We we, we enjoy that now. And yet we we, we, we long and we yearn for that day yet future, the return of the Lord Jesus, when the very presence of the curse will be removed and that harmony and beauty and symmetry will be restored. We sing it in one of our Christmas carols. It's rather unfortunate that it's called a Christmas carol because it actually isn't a Christmas carol. Joy to the world, a beautiful stanza. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. He became a curse for us. So that we who are under the curse of the law, God's judgment, might be set free. Friend, I'm belaboring this because I pray by the Spirit of God you're getting it. Really getting this. You know, later, we'll see it next, next Lord's Day. Later, as we move into the, on in the chapter and, and, and we see the cross, we, we see that there are two terrorists crucified with Christ. They're not mere thieves. These are murderers. These are seditionists, insurrectionists. These are terrorists. 
and they're crucified, one on the right, one on the left. The cry of one, if you are the king, save us now. You know what that is? That's a desire for deliverance without repentance. That may apply to some in this room. That is a desire for deliverance without repentance. Save me, save me, help me, help me, deliver me, deliver me. No, friend, the invitation, the call, and the command is this. Believe and repent. Repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you have the cry of that other thief, don't you? Remember me when you come into your kingdom, the king of the Jews. The other terrorist understood precisely who he was and that he was receiving his just reward. He understood that Jesus was an innocent man and got a glimpse of something that he was accomplishing in his agony there upon Calvary's cross. And his cry was simply this, remember me. Now hear these words, friend. To stay away from Jesus means death and destruction. That's simple. To stay away from Jesus means death and destruction. To come to Jesus means life and salvation. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, Isaiah 53, 5. And with his stripes we are healed. Our Father, we pray that you might take this glorious gospel, this good news of salvation, And by your spirit, be well pleased to drive it home this day. We read, we proclaim, we invite, and we plead. But ultimately, you must work by your spirit, opening crevices and darkened minds and shining forth the light, breaking hardened hearts, hearts hardened in sin and rebellion and disinterest and apathy and contempt and convicting of sin, and burdening with the weight of judgment. We pray, our Father, that this might be the day of salvation for some gathered here. We pray that you might be well pleased to be merciful, to be gracious, to pour out your Spirit, cultivating faith where there is none, repentance where there is nothing but hardness. We pray that there might be a turning to you, a longing after a righteousness which can only be found in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've spoken well of him this day. We have sought to exalt him, grant him the preeminence. We do ask that he might have the preeminence in each heart, each one gathered here. In his most holy name we ask it. Amen.